There are so many scenes in the biblical accounts of the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ that just bring a smile to our face, aren't there? They just bring delight to our souls. What's one of your favorites? What's one of your favorite scenes in the narratives of the birth of Christ that just brings a smile to your face? For some of you, that sermon that Pastor Mark preached recently about Mary going to visit her relative Elizabeth, what a heartwarming, true account of a scene in the birth of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Doesn't that thrill your heart to think about the way the Lord ministered there and revealed even to Elizabeth that her Savior was in her relative's womb at that very moment? Or maybe you find special delight in listening and singing again afresh the the song of the angel, the, the announcement of the angel to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. Or maybe you find your heart stirred whenever you picture in your imagination the visit of the shepherds to that stable, meeting their humble Savior. What's one of your favorite stories that just thrill your heart? You know, as I was rereading some of the narratives of the birth of Jesus Christ recently, I came across one scene that did not bring a smile to my face, that did not thrill my heart. If anything, it brought confusion, and it made me sad. Think about it. It's only five or six miles. That's a daily jog for Pastor Rod. <laughs> five or six miles. <laughs> All the religious leaders in Jerusalem knew God's promise as recorded in the book of Micah. They knew God's prophecy that the Messiah would be born in the nearby village of Bethlehem, the city of David. It's only five or six miles. But even though it was just a short distance, they never made the effort to go check it out. It wasn't that they didn't know intellectually. They knew the prophecies. They had copies of the prophet Micah. They knew the prophecy. It wasn't that they hadn't been informed that it happened. The Magi, the, interestingly, the Gentile Magi, had traveled hundreds of miles coming to Jerusalem to look for this new king of the Jews. The religious leaders knew that these strange Gentiles coming from the east were aware of something. That the Messiah had come and had been born in the nearby village of Bethlehem, and yet they made no effort to go meet him. That information made no difference in their lives. The problem with these religious leaders in Jerusalem was not in their heads. It was in their hearts. They didn't believe the promise. They didn't believe the promise of the first advent in any functional and any practical way. And it's sad. It is tragically sad. They did not believe in the first advent. Advent. The first advent was Jesus coming as the Savior, wasn't it? 
What was it the angel said to the shepherds? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There's a second advent promised in the Bible. A second coming of the Messiah Jesus. And at the second coming, yes, he is coming as the ultimate Savior. But the Bible teaches us clearly that he's also coming as the judge. That Jesus Christ in his second advent is coming back to the earth and he will judge all people from all the world, from all of history. Some to eternal salvation and some to eternal punishment. That's an awesome promise of God revealed repeatedly in the Bible. The question we have today is this. Two questions. One is, will we believe, do we believe, the promise of Christ's second advent? Will we believe that? And then the second question flows from that, and it is this. So what? What difference will that make in our lives? If we say, yes, we believe in the second coming, the second advent of Jesus, then how does that impact us the way we live now? Please join me in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And today we're going to see that the Word of God says clearly that God has promised the second coming of Christ, the second advent. <clears throat> and in this passage, we're going to meet two very different viewpoints. We're going to meet two very different kinds of people. First, we're going to meet someone who is very self-centered, self-assured. A self-centered person who believes that he or she has both the uh, right and the authority, the ability to judge what is true and what is false in and of himself. That I will decide what is true, I will decide what is wrong, I will decide what is moral, I will decide what is immoral. We're going to meet a person who starts with self. I have the right, I have the authority, I have the ability to make judgments in and of myself. I will even decide whether I will believe the promises found in the Word of God or not. And then we're going to meet a second person who is very different. A person who is not self-centered, but a person who is God-centered. A person who says, I don't trust my own judgment. I don't lean on my own understanding. But I am dependent on the Word of God. I am dependent to listen to what God says. And I will believe what he says in his word, and I will order my life accordingly. Two very different viewpoints. Two very different people. The one I'll refer to in the sermon today as a self-centered person. And the other as a God-centered person. You look to see if you see these two different viewpoints, these two different people now. As we read Second Peter chapter 3, the first 14 verses. The Word of God says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, 
that scoffers, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Well, let's first meet this self-centered person. How does this egocentric, how does this self-centered person sees the world around him? How does he see the world around him? Did you notice that in verse 4? He says, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The self-centered person believes that he or she has the authorization to make righteous judgments in and of himself. I can decide. I will decide what's true, what's false, what's true for me. I will decide what's right, what's wrong. And relying on that understanding, relying on his own ability or what his presumed ability is to discern truth from error, morality from immorality, he makes this judgment that Jesus isn't coming back. He makes this judgment that the present is as it has always has been. So he looks around him at the world around him. Let's not miss that benefit from our current trial. But the self-centered person looks at the promises of God and he says, you know what, that's nonsense. I'm not going to trust the promises of God. I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on the earth. It's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come back. And so he looks around him and he says, Jesus isn't here. Jesus hasn't come back yet. If he hasn't come back yet, he ain't coming. And he thinks that's a right judgment because it makes sense to him. It's logical to him. How does a self-centered person see the past? Look at verses 5 and 6. 
They deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by these means of the world, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The self-reliant person, the self-centered person has eye problems. He's living with some sort of fatal myopia. A fatal nearsightedness. He can't see very far. And because he's blinded to the truths of God, he wrongly judges world history, choosing to ignore reality that there have been cataclysmic interventions of God over the history of the world. And the first one is creation itself. He deliberately forgets that the world around him, that he exists, she exists because God created the world. Everything is a direct work of God. A loud reminder. People deliberately forget that. Kids, what's the first sentence in the Bible? Can some of you kids help me with the first sentence in the Bible? In the beginning, let me hear some young voices. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Friends, this is a big book. I've checked most of the copies of the Bible I have, and most of them have like 2,000 pages. That's a big book. So God's going to write this big book. And how does he choose to start? What is his opening line? What is God's opening line to his written revelation? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. If we miss that, we miss all the pages that follow. I mean, God is making a statement that he is creator God. He is the author of all that exists. And if he is the author, he has authority over all that exists. It's all his. He made it. And everyone and everything will give an account to him, creator God. But the self-centered person is blinded to that reality. He refuses, he deliberately refuses to look at the past and say, God made that. God made me. It's a fatal myopia. Friends, we live in a society today, our Western society usually sees um, history, creation as a closed system. You know what I mean by that? I mean, we talk about natural laws. I think, if, if you use the term natural laws, I, I won't cringe too much, as long as you say that's God's normal providence. <laughs> God's normal way of doing things is what we call natural law. But if we assume that this universe is operating on its own, that it came into existence on its own, and it operates on its own, then we're in essence saying God is not involved. God is on the outside. If God exists at all, he either cannot or does not choose to intervene in history. But the Bible clearly says, clearly says, that God made all that exists. The self-centered person deliberately overlooks that blatant truth all around him. He suppresses that truth in unrighteousness, Paul would write to the Romans, deliberately forgets. 
deliberately forgets another cataclysmic intervention of God in history. What was that? Peter mentions it here. The flood, what we call Noah's flood. Noah's flood was the judgment of God. That God judged the world that then existed because of the depravity, the sinfulness of man, saving only eight people from that cataclysmic intervention. But the self-centered person doesn't want to think about that. Because if that were true, if it were true that God intervened in history and there was actually a flood in Noah's day, that there was judgment of God from 99.9% of the people, then that might imply that he could do it again. So let's just, let's just dismiss that. Let's just say that's myth. Let's just say that that's nonsense. Christian friends, you adult Christian friends, did you ever wonder why two biblical doctrines that are most passionately denied in the world around us are creation and the flood? Why? Why, why would the world around us the unsaved world around us, be so passionately in denial of divine creation and a flood of God's judgment. They don't want to think about judgment. They don't want to think about God. And so let's just blow that off, or as Peter says, to deliberately overlook that. I'll just deliberately overlook that fact that God has intervene cataclysmically in the history of the human race. He, he made creation and he judged creation as the rightful author of all things. It is a deliberate denial, a suppression of what is clearly true. Parents and grandparents, let us be faithful in teaching the coming generations these crucially important doctrines of creation and the flood of God in judgment. So the self-centered person has this fatal myopia. He can't see what's true around him. He can't see what's true in the past. And he can't see what lies ahead. He's denying that Jesus is coming back as the judge of all. Right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. What's it say there at the end of the promise of his coming? Can you hear the sarcasm in that? Can you hear the cynicism in that? This um, self-centered, I have a right to determine what's true, what's false. I have a right to determine my own course in life, what's moral, what's immoral. I will chart my own course. I'm the captain of my own ship. What does that orientation in life, what does that viewpoint in life yield? What kind of fruit does that yield? Well, let's talk about the attitude of a self-centered person. The attitude is what? It's scoffing. And Peter kind of doubles up on that imagery here, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He says, They'll, scoffing they will scoff. You know, there's this underlining, this bold print of their scoffing. Come on, man. This whole talk about Jesus coming back, that's a bunch of nonsense. But sadly, that bad attitude is coupled with a sinful, self-promoting, self-pleasing, self-determined lifestyle. There's a reason I paused over the word own in verse 3. Following their own evil desires, it's because Peter's emphasizing that word in that sentence. Following their own evil desires. 
I want to live for myself. I want to do what I want to do. I don't, I don't want God messing with my life. I don't want God somehow intervening with my life. So I will chart my own course. I will identify myself. I will determine myself. I will motivate myself as I go forward from here. I'm going to do my own thing. If they believe that God exists, there's still that denial that Jesus is coming back to judge all men. I was thinking about that popular saying, when the cat's away, mice will play. And the self-centered person says, when the cat's away, the mice will play. If Jesus isn't coming back, I can do whatever I want. Hey, you know what? Maybe the cat's never coming back. I can just live how I want to live. Here's a sobering question. What's God going to do with self-centered people? How will God deal with people who deliberately choose to ignore, even deny, scoff at God's sovereign right to judge, His promise that He's sending His Son back as the judge of all people? Well, what's God's commitment to that orientation in life? Look at verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, there's a message that's not very popular to preach in our culture, is it? That God is coming back and there will be judgment and destruction of the wicked. The self-centered person is in for a rude awakening on judgment day if they don't repent and believe, aren't they? Well... Let's shift our attention to the, from the self-centered person to the God-centered person. What is the God-centered person's perspective on the present when the God-centered, the Christian, the person who's been given eyes to see by the grace of God? I was even going over my notes early this morning and I got thinking of what Peter wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Peter 3. He talks about, by God's grace, by God's grace, the veil was lifted off of our eyes and and some of us in this room can remember that day when God lifted the veil. And Paul goes on in that letter to the Corinthians and he says in chapter 4 that the, the voice that spoke light into creation spoke light into our darkened souls. And you might remember that day when he came and, and he shone the light of his saving grace into your dark soul. And suddenly you saw. You saw reality for the first time in your life. And you saw God's glory in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus that meant nothing to you yesterday now looked to you as beautiful and precious. He said, my Lord, my God. He shone His light, His saving light into your darkened soul. He, he gave you eyes to see. Well, if you're a recipient of his amazing grace, he's given you eyes to see. How you look around you at life now, and what do you see? You see that his promises are true, even in the context of living around scoffers. Peter says in first, excuse me, 2 Peter 3.3, 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Friends, listen to me. We live in an era that is increasingly cynical about biblical truths. I'm not an alarmist by nature. 
I'm a fairly steady person, I think, but being older than many of you, maybe most of you in the room, I realize that in my lifetime I have seen the cynicism increasing. It's like a volume knob that's been turned up. It's been cranked up. The scoffing gets louder. And if you're going to live passionately, if you're going to live consistently for Jesus Christ in a world that's increasingly cynical, scoffing, and you find your friends at school, kids, your friends at school making fun of you for being a Christian, for believing the Word of God, when the people in your workplace scoff at you, for your commitment to Christ. When the people on social media, it's like they can't wait for you to put up some Bible verse so they can attack you. What are you going to do with that? You're going to say, I don't like this. I don't like people making fun of me. I don't like being scoffed at. Maybe I'll just tone it down. Maybe I'll just keep a low profile here. Maybe, maybe I'll just kind of pretend to go along with the flow so I don't get made fun of. I don't get mocked. I don't get scoffed. Listen. When God gives us eyes to see, he's given us eyes to see his, his promises. And he says, you know this. You know that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing. And so when you're met as a Christian, when you're met with scoffing in the world in which we live, it shouldn't pry your fingers off of your faith. It shouldn't shake you up. It shouldn't put you into a tailspin. Because when you, you hear your friends mocking you for being a Christian, when you see your friends isolating you, ostracizing you because of your commitment to Christ, as sad as that makes you, you say, well, he told me this was coming. He, he told me it was coming. I ought not to be shaken, even if I'm sad. I don't know. And so we see that in the world around us. We, we realize this is the world in which we live. We're prepared. Train your children, train your grandchildren to live in a hostile world. The God-centered person can see the present more clearly because God's given him eyes to see. And he sees that the fact that Jesus hasn't come back is not revealing that he's not coming back, it reveals to us that he's so patient. Do you realize Jesus isn't coming back until the last of his elect is saved? And we don't know who it is, we don't know when it is, but you realize when that last elect puts his faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to hear the trumpet. And so we look at the, what seems like a delay to us. And we say, oh, how patient he is. His patience leads us to repentance. And we say, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he didn't come back the day before you profess faith in Jesus Christ? Aren't you glad that he was patient with you? The God-centered person sees the past and he realized that God has created the universe. I, when I talk to the grandkids about this sometimes, I say, it's like we can see God's signature, like a, like a painter puts a signature on his paintings. We look around us and we see the signature of God over creation all around us. Instead of saying, oh, look at that beautiful sunset, we can say, oh, look at what God has done this evening. That we see his signature, we, we see creation. Is the work of his hands. 
We understand that the Bible said about the flood that God did do that, that he did judge the mass of humanity because of their sin. And when he says he's going to do it again, we say we understand. And so we see the future more clearly from a God-centered perspective. So how does this affect the daily life? How does having a God-centered perspective that I see the Word of God, I see His promises, that Jesus is coming back, and I want to believe that. How does that belief, how does that faith impact daily life? Let me give you two words. When, when the Bible talks about the future, when the Bible talks about prophecy, what the theologians call eschatology, that's in the Bible for a couple of key reasons. The one reason is hope, and the other reason is holiness. And if you'll remember that, when you're reading the prophecies in the Bible, of the end times, that will encourage your soul. Hope and holiness. Hope that as believers, we, we wait for something. Did you notice how many times in this one portion of Peter's letter, he talks about waiting? In verses 12, 13, and 14, three times, three times in that little short section, Peter says, while we're waiting, while we're waiting, and the word waiting there is the idea of a, a longing expectation, a sure hope, not impatience, but a patient waiting. We're, we know that day's coming. Yes, even as a child looks forward, longs, waits for Christmas Day, we long for the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, think about this. If we look at life, if we look at life as just being circular, people talk about history being circular. If we look at life and history as being circular, then it's not like we're going anywhere, right? It just feels like we're not going anywhere. And when we go through hard times, we can get really discouraged, even depressed. Especially if hard times last for a long season like they are right now. If we think that history is somehow apart from God, it's a closed system and Everything's just going around and around. It's like, man, this is really discouraging. But when we realize that history, our lives are not circular but linear, we're going in a line, we're going toward a destination, then that changes our whole perspective. We realize God has a plan. He's moving us toward His destination. And knowing that, believing that, yields hope, the fruit of hope in our lives, especially when we go through difficult times. How did Paul say it to the Romans? He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When we're going through hard times, we say, yeah, this is hard. We don't need to be dishonest with plastic smiles on our face. Christians grieve. Christians mourn sickness and death. But we do it with our hearts fixed on the promise of God that Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to make it all right. We have that hope and we have that holiness. Did you notice in verse 11, holiness and godliness, verse 14, be found in him without spot or blemish. Faith yields faithfulness. As I preach to myself, I want to live for that day 
And that one, and those words, well done, good and faithful servant. If we truly believe, truly believe that Jesus is coming back, and I will stand before him, I want to live each day. I want to live this day in light of that day. I want to live this day in light of that day. And that one, Jesus Christ, and his words, well done. God has a glorious destination planned for us, friends. Jesus Christ is coming back. What is at the essence of this passage you've looked at today? It's an issue of faith. Will I believe? Will I believe the promise of God that Jesus is coming back? He promised a first advent, the coming of the Messiah, and the Messiah came. We celebrate it every year. But he's also promised a second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Will I believe that? If you are listening to my voice and you're saying, eh, I don't know. I, I don't see all this happening, Jesus coming back. That, that just that doesn't make any sense to me. That's not logical to me. I don't like what it does to my life to think about that. I'm just going to ignore that. Friend, I would encourage you to take some time and read what the Bible means. Chapter 1, he says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, listen to this, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints to be marveled at among all who have believed. So if you're here today and you're still wrestling with cynicism, skepticism about this thought of Jesus coming back, can I beg you to reconsider? I know it's my imagination, but I've wondered at times what happened to the people in Noah's day when the rain didn't stop. When the people who had scoffed, people who had mocked Noah for believing the promise of God that he was going to send the flood. You realize Noah had to live with mockery and scorning and scoffing from all the people who disbelieved that a flood was coming, the flood of God's judgment. But in my imagination, I wonder what happened when the Rain didn't stop and the earth broke open and the floodwaters rose. How many of those scoffers were beating on the outside of the ark saying, Noah, I'm sorry I was wrong. Let me in, Noah, let me in. But it was too late. Judgment had come. And if you're wrestling with the cynicism in your heart today, I would beg you to repent of that and put your faith in the clear word of God, faith in his promised son that he's coming back. Because the day will come when it will be too late. Today's the day of salvation, my friends. If you say, oh, I do believe. I do believe in the promise of God. I do believe in his son. I do believe that the son's coming back. Now what? I love how Peter ends his letter. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The grace and knowledge. I want to encourage you. We're coming close to the end of this year. Would you make a new commitment, a commitment in the new year to read the Word of God? Looking for Jesus Christ, looking for His promises. That you might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So read 
Peter talks about the holy prophets. That would be the Old Testament. And then he talks about Jesus Christ through his apostles. That would be the New Testament. Read your Bible. Second, recall. Read, recall. Remember that we need reminded as we live in this fallen world. We can lose sight of the promises of God. Maybe a good practice I should do this coming year, and I invite you to join me, is in the morning when I shave, comb down what's left of my hair. As I look in the mirror, maybe I ought to just pause. That'll be my reminder to pray at that moment. Might it be today, Lord? Might it be today? And that we live each day in light of that day. So we read, we recall, and then we respond. Lord, I want to live for you. And I'm going to see your face one day. I want to have a good report. I want to live in holiness and righteousness. You want to join me in that as we come into the new year? To live that way, to pray that way. Read, recall, and respond. Do you know how the Bible ends? The last thing we hear from Jesus, John records in Revelation 22, verse 20, where Jesus said, Surely I am coming soon. That's the last thing we hear from Jesus. Surely I am coming soon. And then John says how the people respond. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Jesus says, look, behold, I'm coming soon. And his people say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Why don't you join me in saying that out loud? Amen, come Lord Jesus. Stand with me as I pray. And the worship team is going to come and lead us.